I believe the applause was louder before you sang. <laughs> that was great. Boy, we, mercy, we miss you guys over there in the Oklahoma City. If you have this blue sheet, we're going to work with it tonight. And there's a two-part sermon fixing to come at you. The first part, part number one. Forgiving like a servant forgives. We said there are three characteristics of servanthood. A servant is one who gives, who forgives, and who forgets. We're going to talk tonight about how the servant forgives. Forgiving like a servant forgives. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. How many servants do you know? A servant is a person who gives, who forgives, who forgets. I mentioned this morning in the, ser the uh, sermon a man named Francis Schaeffer. Some of you have read some of the things he's written. Fantastic. He's got a lot of uh, contemporary stuff out. Has some move, has some uh, uh, religious films that are just outstanding. Francis Schaeffer is not your, um, you know, your typical theologian. He uh, goes around in t-shirt and knickers, you know, and uh, he uh, lives in a little chalet up in the Swiss Alps. He is a tremendous thinker. He has a book called No Little People. And in this book he says, quote, People in the world naturally like to boss others. Imagine a young boy, he said, taking a new job in a large firm. He has a lowly place. Um, he's ordered around by everyone, do this, do that. He, every dirty job he gets, he's a low man on the totem pole. One day when the boss is out, he slips into the boss's office, looks carefully around just to be sure that nobody's there. When he's certain nobody's there, he plops down in the boss's chair, puts his feet up on the boss's desk, and says aloud, one of these days I'll say run, and they'll run. That young man is everybody here. For that, that mindset, we do, not, uh, we do not discard or is not eradicated when we become Christians. We want a boss. We want the word of power. We want to be in control over our fellows. Some of the most vicious things that go on in the realm of power struggles takes place in a Baptist church. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the old Adamic nature. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. There's a seed in all of us that wants to put our feet up on somebody's desk and say, one of these days I'm going to say jump, and he's going to jump. But tonight we find ourselves standing in the shadow of a cross. The cross of the most significant man who has ever lived. And when I think of uh, the cross life, I think of the servant life and vice versa. Because the shadow of the cross just cast itself 
over the life of this significant man and everything he did, every day he lived. And as we stand before God tonight in the shadow of this cross, it has two beams. It has a vertical beam, one that goes up and down, and it has a horizontal beam, one that goes out, across. Now, sometimes I get those confused. That is vertical, isn't it? Up and down is vertical. The, the vertical beam meaning that all power comes from God. I mean, everything we have that's worth having comes from Him. Everything we are that's of value is from Him. All power comes from God, and all the credit goes back to Him. He gives the power, and He gets all the credit. And then there's that horizontal beam that extends out from, you know, to this pole and that pole and to you and you. And there's where I have the problem. The greatest problems I have, the greatest wars and struggles that I have, uh, have to do with my fellow man. And most of them have to do with what we're going to discuss tonight, with the matter of forgiving forgiveness. And so in your New Testament in hand, the second chapter of Second of, uh, Corinthians, verse 4 through 6. I'm going to skip down to the punishment, be part of the text, of the, uh, of the worksheet. And I want to begin reading at verse 4 of chapter 2, 2 Corinthians. Are you ready and are you with me? Chapter 2, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears... Not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. You know, if you love somebody, you're going to cry over those folk. You ever notice that? These young people know that. I mean, you, you fall in love, you're going to shed tears. It's just not possible to love somebody and not weep over them. And if you're tearless, you know, in your relationships, I mean, you never weep over them. You, you have a problem with love at that point. You have love for somebody. There are going to be times where you're going to cry over. You can't protect yourself from that. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority now, he's talking about somebody who's been afflicted and has, has endured or suffered punishment. Now, who is this? Who is this? He's talking about who is this one that the majority has punished? And in dealing with all of this, the Apostle Paul has been led to tears. Well, with your New Testament there, take a left and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We're going to identify this person who, who has been punished in chapter 2, 2 Corinthians. Now remember that 2 Corinthians was written about a year after the first letter, the first epistle was written, and it comes right on the heels of what he wrote in, chapter, uh, in 1 Corinthians. Now look at 5.1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not, even, does not exist even among the Gentiles. He said, there are things going on in the Christian church in, in Corinth 
that is, that is something that the Gentile pagans wouldn't even do. That someone has his father's wife, adult incest. Now, obviously, this man's father had remarried, a second wife, and she was having, and he was having, her, the son was having an adulterous relationship with his father's second wife, adult incest. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. And in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, now it's time you did something about this immorality in the church. My grandfather used to talk about discipline. You know, he said, we're going to have to have some discipline here, young man. And, you know, I, I think maybe he got on it right there. Well, that might be the best, trans, best uh, uh, way to pronounce that word. We're going to have to have some discipline here, says the Apostle Paul, and we're going to have to take that guy and turn him over to Satan so that in this punishment he might be spared, saved. For he says, verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little dabble, do you? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You better get him out of there because he's going to in, 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 infect or interrupt the whole fellowship of the church. Now, if you think they were just kind of playing around in Corinth, you read verses 11 through 13. It's serious matter. Now, that's the punishment. Uh, and that's the one he's talking about. He's been punished. Now, what is needed in the church after this man has done this? I just got to use that illustration again of that church in, in Northern California. That guy did just exactly what this fellow did in this text, not, not in this, with his mother, uh, stepmother, but with another lady in town, and they disfellowshipped him. And they put him out. And they disciplined him. They put some discipline on him. But he came back to the Lord and he came back to the church. You know what they did? They had a banquet for him. And they got, they got a jacket, you know, and they put him up here at the head table, just like, just like the prodigal son coming back from the far country, and he got a robe for him. They got a jacket from the man's store, and they had him stand up, and they put it on him. And they went down to Zales Jewelers, and they got a ring, just like in... Luke 15, and they put it on his finger. And they went down to the department store and they got shoes for his feet. And the preacher went over there, took off his old shoes that kind of had a worn out soles on them, put on the new ones, and they forgave him. Now, what is needed in the church at Corinth? What is needed in the First Baptist Church at Durant? Forgiveness. Now, would you look at Chapter 2 again, back to chapter 2, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 2, 7. Let's look at this. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Look at that. Forgive and comfort him. 
lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We don't, we're not out to hurt this man. We're out to save him. Now it's time to forgive. Ah, look at this servanthood beginning to ooze out the pores. Forgive him. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might be put that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient at all things. But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, I if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now look at this thing. We've got to forgive. He said. It's time. We're not out to hurt him. We're not out to punish him any longer. We're out to forgive him. For if you don't forgive, Satan's going to get in the whole situation. Let me show you something, folks. Anytime you have a relationship of people where, that are unforgiving, Satan's going to have an entrenched place of work. And anytime you have a church that will not forgive, that church is going to be bombarded by him and his schemes. It's no accident that he applies here the idea of the, of the work of Satan to the place of forgiveness because there is no place where he can work more effectively than in a place where forgiveness is not found. You can take that home and write it down and when you're popping off those firecrackers and shooting up those Roman candles, you just remember that's a principle you can live by. If we don't forgive, we can forget about defeating him. What else does the church need? The church needs repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Take a right to chapter 7 and look at verse 8. This thing will go, friend. This will preach. Just hang in there. We're going to get it. For though I have caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though, if, regret it, though I did regret it, I, I, I hated to do it, but I don't, hate to, I don't hate it that I did it. Is that what he's saying? For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made, so, made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in, in you, what vindication of yourself, what vindication, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, I wrote to you it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended but that your earnestness on but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. And he said, "Now I hate to do this, but I wrote you this letter having, you know, just what we read in in, in 1 Corinthians in order that you might be repentant that is vulnerable that you might have godly sorrow. 
Now, if you want to take a word and put another word beside it and make it, and then the two words are, are very, mean the, very much the same thing, uh, synonymous, you take the word repentant in this passage and you put alongside that word vulnerable. We're so afraid to be honest. We learn how to say the right things and do the right things and act the right way. We're scared to death to be honest. Let me tell you something, folks. You're not going to have it. We're not going to have a church. We don't have a church until we are transparent and willing to be, until we are vulnerable and willing to be, until we are open to one another and willing to be. To be able to say to each other, hey, look, I was wrong, I failed, I'm, I've, I've blown it, and I want you to forget, look right in here, I'm not perfect. I've done a lot of things I'm not happy about. Being vulnerable to one another, to accept the possibility of rejection, that's what he's asking for. Two dynamic things in the church that are desperately needed with regard to relationships. One is forgiveness and the other is the, is the willingness to be vulnerable, to be open, to be honest with one another. Now that's at the heart of forgiveness. Now, some clarifying remarks about it. When you are the offender, flip, take a left to Matthew 5. We're going to deal just with the offender and then we're going to quit. Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. Verses 23 and 24. When you are the offender, look at this. If therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember, boy, you'd like... We'd like to forget, wouldn't we? You, we just can't. You know, it, it, when you've offended somebody, you, you, can't for, you just can't forget that. The Lord won't let you forget. I mean, right here, sitting right here on this front row, and old Peter Lord is up here talking about, ask the Lord if you got anything wrong in your life. Wham, bango, there it came again. Name, address, and serial number. You know, you just can't. When you come to the altar, he said, and, and there you remember, the Lord just brings it back. Right now, you're thinking of his name or her name. You better deal with that. The Holy Spirit brings that name, that face, that person, and he just keeps on bringing it up. When you're there, you remember that your brother has something against you. You don't have to try to remember. You have to try to dig it up. The Holy Spirit will take care of that business. Leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now what, what does that mean? In the time of Jesus, in the temple, they brought their offering, a, a sacrifice. I mean, they brought, you know, just think how many thousands of sacrifices were brought and, 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 and animals slain, blood uh, spilled on the altar because that was their way to God. They had to bring their sacrifice, they had to bring their offering to get to God, and it was their access to Him. That's what it means when, when that final sacrifice was made, the veil was rent, and men went into God's presence, you know, uh, on their own. But before that, they had, 
to bring an offering. Now he said, now when you bring your offering to the altar and you remember the Holy Spirit, God brings to your mind that person you've, you've offended. Leave your offering there and go get reconciled. Can you imagine what would happen on Sunday morning if that happened in Durant First Baptist Church? I mean, before you brought your gift of teaching, before you brought your gift of singing, before you brought your gift of preaching, you went and got everything straightened out and the, with a brother you have offended. Just think what kind of a revival would burst out in this place. Now, he said, go your way and be reconciled. Now, I'm going to give you what ifs, three what ifs. Now, I want to watch, well, what if? You know, have you, ever, have you ever done it? Well, you need to do, well, what if? Okay, what if? Three what ifs. One, two, three, and we quit. What if he refuses to forgive? What if he refuses to forgive? Now notice in verse 24, the word reconcile. That word is a dynamic word in the Greek. It means to change fully. To change fully, but that's not the end of the definition. To change fully through a process. Now what he's asking is that we begin the process of the changing of a relationship. Begin the process. It means Building up a relationship, it means to begin to build a bridge. That's what the word reconcile means. To begin a process that will begin to rebuild or build a relationship or a bridge between you and Him. Obedience. By doing just what He said in chapter 5, verse 24, you go to that person and you begin the process of getting things straightened out. It might not happen overnight. He may not forgive you there, but you begin the process. I'm talking about between you and ex-husband, between you and ex-wife, neighbor, church member, etc. Whatever it is, you know the name. You can, add, you can put the name, fill in the blank. You already know the name I'm right now. It pops in your mind again, doesn't it? Second, what if? What if it gets worse? What if the condition gets worse? Sometimes it does. I've tried to be obedient in, these, in this area sometimes and just got worse, brother. I mean, it got hot for a while. It got, it got terrible. What if it gets worse? It might. You see, guilt leads to blame, doesn't it? Now, that, that's, a, that's a truism you can write down. Guilt leads to blame. When I'm guilty, I'm going to blame somebody for it. And if I, you know, if I, if, I, if I feel guilty about a relationship, I'm going to blame you if I can, because if I can't, I might blame myself. If you come to me and, ask, and get, try to get things straightened out and ask for my forgiveness, then that takes care of the blame. What's left? Guilt. I got to deal with the guilt. See, I don't have anybody else to blame. I, I can't blame you anymore. So what happens? I've got guilt on my hands that I got to deal with. And guilt is dynamite. It's terrible to have to deal with. So sometimes it does get worse. Sometimes when you go to somebody and you, and you seek to be reconciled, it just strips all the blame away and the guilt is there and that guilt just really becomes volatile and explosive. I heard this little poem. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed about why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find and here's what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk 
So it follows naturally that I always am drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that's why I suffer now from kleptomania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally that I poison all my lovers. But I'm happy now that I've learned the lesson this has taught, that everything that I do that is wrong is somebody else's fault. That's just about the way we work it. It's his fault. But if he comes to me and he says, hey, I've done wrong, I'm sorry, I want you to forgive me. I'll have no excuses, I'm just laying it on the line. I've done wrong, I want you to forgive me. I have nobody else to blame. So I gotta deal with the guilt. Might get worse. What if? What if I just take it to the Lord and not go to the person? Hey, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Well, I'll just take it to the Lord. Well, if we do that, it's a contradiction to verse 24. It won't work. Hey, let's suppose tonight and I back out of my parking place out here and do a left and run smack dab into your new 98. I mean just rip it right down the side. Just take the paneling and the molding and the paint off. Just tear it apart. Your brand new shiny automobile. I see you in the morning. I say, hey, look, man, tell you what happened last night. I rammed your car. Oh, you did that? You, I wonder who that was. I did that, but I got everything straightened out. I asked God to forgive me, and God forgave me. Everything's all right. <laughs> you going you to like me for that? Let's suppose, let's suppose I owe you $500, and the debt's due, and you'll need it badly. It's time to pay up, and I come to you, and I say, Look, I know I owe you $500, but last night on my knees, I asked God to forgive me for borrowing that money and for owing it and couldn't pay it back, and God said it's all right, and he forgave me, and everything's fine. See you later. It just won't work. We used to sing that little chorus, that little song. You know it, don't you? If I've wounded any soul today, if I have caused one foot to go astray, if I have walked in my own willful way, dear Lord, forgive. Man, that sounds good. But that's not enough. Some of you have wounded some souls. And some of you have caused, and some of us, some of us have caused some to go astray. And some of us have walked in our own willful way in, in terms of other people. And it's not enough just to take that to God. Won't get it. I wish it would, but it won't. So I had to do a little, do a little letter writing after the conference myself. Let your mind tonight be a corridor, and down that corridor you travel on the walls of that corridor. I do this when I counsel with people who have great problems with the healing of memories. Go down the walls of that corridor. It's a long room and hanging, life-size hanging, life-size hangings on the walls. Go to the far end of the corridor, stand before the first painting, ask God to reveal that first painting. And if, he see, if you stand before that painting and the first thing God reveals to you, is the face and name and experience and person, whatever, someone you've offended. And they've been offended by you. Hurt, wounded, led astray, affected. Then you need to get that right with God. 
after you've gotten it right with him. And you'll do it if you're served. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we felt your presence tonight and we've heard your voice so clearly. You've spoken to us through this word and we don't like what we hear. That hurts. But we do want to be obedient like Jesus. So we've already said to you before tonight, before tonight, Lord, if you'll show us what we need to do, we'll do it. I pray you'll show us what we need to do. I pray we'll do it right now in this invitation for Jesus' sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, I'll invite you to stand if God